please turn with me to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5, which is part 6 of our walk through 1 Corinthians. Raise your hand if you're missing a handout. We have extras in the back and someone will grab those for you. This morning as we dig into this passage, I want to just start by pointing out some things that are obvious and pointing out some things that may be less obvious. We live in a sexualized world, and somehow we tend to think that's new. Corinth, 2,000 years ago, is not so different from Kalamazoo today. Back then, men and women had to go out of their way to seek out the gratification of the flesh. As we went through that introduction lesson in part one, we we saw the geography and even just city center of Corinth surrounded by pagan temples, and many of even the worship practices in those temples were sexual in one way or another. But today, unlike having to go physically to city center or physically seek something out, today, sexual immorality has been privatized and secret sins can grow in the darkness of anonymity. But again, Corinth is not so different from Kalamazoo today. As we get ready to jump into this passage, please let me pray for us and then we'll read the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and the guidance it gives us and the wisdom it brings us in navigating extremely complicated and challenging situations. Lord, as we think about the society we live in, as we think about the remainders of indwelling sin, even in our own hearts, Lord, passages like these are challenging but so helpful. So Lord, please help us all to be attentive to what your word has to say for us this morning. Allow each heart to be open to the conviction of your Holy Spirit. Help me to speak clearly as I ought, to to rightly communicate all that is in this passage, and just allow your way to happen in each of our hearts. We lift this time up to you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to start by just reading the first couple verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of such a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Wow. The problem here is arrogant immorality. Arrogant immorality. If the church at Corinth had a welcome sign out front, it would likely have read something to the effect of love is love. We're not going to condemn this guy We're not going to speak against this evil. Rather, we're going to even celebrate it. They're arrogant about it. They're proud about it. Not even shameful at all. Verse 1 really talks about the sin spectrum. And I I say that and I want to be cautious that that doesn't get misunderstood to mean that there's some kinds of sin that God's okay with and some that he's not. When I say the sin spectrum, we have to realize that all sin displeases God. That's your first blank. All sin displeases God, brings his just condemnation, and requires an atoning sacrifice. 
I'm going to ask for a few readers to read these verses nice and loud. Would someone read 1 John 3, 4? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Thank you. And then Romans 6, 23a. Adam, you got that one too. Thank you. And then Hebrews 9.22. First one there, just shout it out or read it from the handout. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thank you. All sin displeases God, brings his just condemnation, and requires an atoning sacrifice. And within that category or, or broad sphere of sin, there is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is a broad category of sin, But this broad category of sin, which Scripture refers to as sexual immorality, is particularly and uniquely destructive. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then later on, next week, we'll talk about, two weeks from now, we'll talk about flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So that's a broad category of sin within sin as a whole, but then there are subcategories of sexual immorality, which even unbelieving pagan societies recognize to be detestable. Some of them are legal, some of them are illegal. There's things that fall under the category of sexual immorality, some of which our culture celebrates, some of which our culture still condemns, but those, those boundaries are ever-changing. In Corinth, as we read in first, the first verse of chapter 5, the kind of sexual immorality here is of such a kind that even the pagan culture around them wasn't tolerating. So within these socially impermissible sins, things that were not allowed within a, a culture, there are those which are simply frowned upon and others which are illegal, And this highlights that even pagan society has some sense of ethical boundaries sexually. But it's really important to note, it is not social acceptability that determines the moral acceptability of a given sexual act. It's not social acceptability that determines moral acceptability of a given sexual act. Nevertheless, the nature of the sin in Corinth was such that even the unbelievers would have considered this incest to be repulsive. And then the response to it. Honestly, working through this and thinking through this, I was trying to wrap my head around how a church that had had the Apostle Paul ministering directly there for 18 months could turn around a handful of months later and be celebrating, arrogant about something that is so clearly contrary to God's design and God's word. But the response is, you are arrogant. Verse 2. They're pridefully celebrating a shameful sin. They're pridefully celebrating a shameful sin. The Corinthians were congratulating themselves for their progressive stance on a sin which they should have immediately condemned. It's no coincidence that in English, the word pride has become directly associated with the most distorted views of human sexuality. Think of it. What does Pride Month mean? 
What does that connotate? It is the arrogant celebration of brokenness and sin. We somehow tend to think that because our country has recently shed a great deal of its external morality, that somehow sexual sin is a new reality. To the contrary, look no further than Corinth to find that sexual immorality is Satan's well-worn path. Satan's well-worn path for entangling entire local church bodies in webs of unholiness. This is not new. Satan has been doing this since day one, tripping up individuals and tripping up local churches with sexual sin in particular. Prideful tolerance of sin and warmly embracing depravity is a sure path to spiritual decay and death. The Christian response to sexual sin should be mournful sorrow. Verse 2, ought you not rather to mourn? We should be broken over all sin, and this is something that God detests. We should be sorrowful. The, The response is not, ought you not to be hateful? Of course not. But the response is sorrow and brokenness over what's happening. Do you mourn and do you grieve sexual sin? Or are there different emotions that arise when you think of sexual sin? Perhaps positive emotions, perhaps different negative emotions such as hate. But does the thought of the evils of this world break your heart? It should. The Corinthians had not only become blind to the sinfulness of sin, They had begun to celebrate what God condemned. The specifics of what this pride and arrogance looked like in Corinth as it relates to this man are not provided. We just know that they were celebrating what they should have been confronting. Now, this is a hard passage, and I want to just pull aside as we go into this and say, I know there are those here who are waging serious spiritual warfare against sinful, broken, and twisted sexual desires. And a passage like this can cut like a dagger into an already sin-tormented heart. But first, let me point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, which we'll deal with in a few weeks. In this passage, we realize that the gospel is for sinners— After Paul has rattled off a list of unrighteous deeds and desires, he goes on to write in verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Washed, sanctified, justified. Those are the words that define the Spirit-indwelled believer in Jesus Christ. This passage in 1 Corinthians 5 is not, and I want to emphasize this extremely clearly, this is not the story of a man struggling with sexual sin. This is a man who has given himself over to sinful fleshly indulgence, and it's the story of a church that has pridefully embraced what should be mournfully rejected. There is a world of difference between waging war with sin and wallowing in sin. Alistair Groves writes this, and this passage this is so helpful. Get this into your heart. Struggle is not a bad thing. Instead, struggle is the glorious work of God as he redeems and sanctifies fallen hearts. 
Most people take a negative view of struggle because it's painful, it's exhausting, and they know that they should not love the sins they are tempted to love. Struggle, however, is God's ordained way of working righteousness into our lives, transforming men into people who radically own it when they say no to temptation. Struggle itself is only possible because of the reviving work of the Spirit. To struggle against evil is a good thing. I hope that passage encourages you and bolsters you in the struggle against sin. The man mentioned in verse 1 is not a man struggling with sin. This is not the story of a man who is mortifying and killing his sin and then coming to the Corinthian elders and and pastors for, for wisdom and counsel and help. This is not a man taking serious steps against a sinful past. This is a man complacent in his immorality. Verse 2 continues with the instructions. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is the appropriate response to this sin. But before we move on to the response, I want to just pause and see if there's any questions related to the problem that Paul's identified here and and any discussion that anyone would like to, to bring out, things that you'd like to comment on. Perhaps if the mentors want to add anything also. This is a hard topic, so it's good to ask questions and work through it. This is the right context for it. So anyone have questions or things to add? So again, second point, the response. Restorative removal. Restorative removal. That sounds like a contrast, but it's not. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 3 For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Wow. The instructions were that they remove the man from the congregation. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And I want to just pull aside here a little bit and talk about what this implies, an implication of this. The instruction that he be removed implies some sort of recognizable local church membership, some way that he was previously identified as in and he needs to be identified as out. So there's some sort of recognizable local church leadership. This is my working definition of what local church membership is. Local church membership is the public, committed, and mutual association and fellowship of an individual believer with a particular congregation. Andy Nacelli on this passage comments, submitting to a church is not like joining a club. It is more like an embassy in a host nation declaring that a person is a citizen of its home nation. A church declares that a person is, the, is a citizen of God's kingdom. The biblical basis for church membership, just briefly, these are points that you can dig into more as you have opportunity. First, the early church's example. They were accounting for those added to the church, so somehow they were able to count who was added, Acts 2, 41 through 42. And the addressees of the epistles, regularly, the letters in the New Testament were written to local congregations. I won't dig into that. There's some footnotes you can read through if you're interested. 
Second, local church leadership's responsibility. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 speak to the responsibility of elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. For whom are our elders responsible? Is it, elders at, or is it, is it individual believers at other churches? No, it's individual believers here. And third um, basis is church discipline, which is what this passage is about. Church discipline implies identifiable church membership. Mez McConnell writes, Proper church discipline is impossible without defined church membership. Truly, I, I don't know what a passage like this looks like in an environment where there's not some way of identifying who's a part of the church, who's not a part of the church. And then fourthly, the mutual responsibilities of the Christian life, the one another's throughout Scripture. One highlighted is Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. When you read the New Testament and it gives commands to do these things to one another, who is that referring to? If that's referring to every Christian on the planet, you're in trouble because you can't obey that command. So the mutual responsibilities of the Christian life, the one another's, are another uh, basis for church membership. A book I highly recommend if there's still, and I'm sure there is, questions related to church membership is by Jonathan Lehman, Church Membership, How the World Knows Who Represents Jesus. So the name of the book is Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman. i read it in two hours. So continuing in verse 3, after he's been told to remove this man from among you, the judgment is guilty. The judgment is guilty. The man stands condemned. In essence, Paul is saying that I do not need to be present to work through this issue in person. I don't need to show up and we have a meeting and kind of talk about it. Like This man's sin is of such a nature that it's renowned. Other congregations in other places are hearing about this. Clearly the verdict is guilty and the man needs corrective discipline. So Paul instructs accordingly. So the instructions are for corporate excommunication. Verses 4 and 5. He is to be removed from the church fellowship. The church discipline process is highlighted in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, directly from our Lord Jesus. He writes, or he, he says, it's recorded in Matthew, concisely three verses, how does it look to pursue this sort of reconciliation, to pursue this restoration? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Phase one. If he listens to you, that's the aim the whole time. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the phase one, private confrontation. Phase two, small group coming and trying to help restore this brother, help this brother see his sin. Phase three, letting the whole church know of this persistent sin and letting every member have a part in going to this individual. Hey, if you know this person, seek them out. Seek them out. They're living in unrepentant sin. And if even after that process, this individual is persistent in their unwillingness to listen to God's word, unwillingness to respond in repentance, then the persistently unrepentant person is removed from the church and treated like a non-believer. Which is good to, at this point, ask, how do we treat non-believers? We love them and we evangelize them. And we don't pretend that we're buddy-buddy, that everything's fine, that 
oh, it's just, just like old times, we'll hang out and maybe we'll just kind of avoid the, the churchy conversations. No, treating them as an unbeliever, as we're supposed to treat unbelievers, is to lovingly share the gospel with them, lovingly engage with them, but not to pretend that they're part of the church family. This means evangelistic petition should characterize any relationship with this individual, not warm-hearted, buddy-buddy dynamics. I just want to speak for any one of you that are members that have been a part of these processes at Calvary and have, have seen how those meetings unfold and how heavy a time that is for our elders to come before us as a congregation and say, here's the situation. The people you should talk to about this are the person you're hearing it from or the person in sin, no one else. This isn't a time to go spread gossip. This is a time to all out seek the restoration of this brother or sister. Those are not pleasant meetings. And I don't think anyone would have just kind of thought that up as like the way to go about things if it hadn't been the instructions that God gave us. And although that doesn't, this, this doesn't, this isn't the be all end all validation. Results aren't the key thing we're looking for. I will say just from personal experience and observation, I know Russ can speak to this too, having been on the elder board, to see the way the Lord works through his prescribed methodology in this is truly miraculous. To see someone who was unrepentant in one brother coming and saying, hey, man, what's going on with this? You, you realize what you're doing here. To see unwillingness at the next layer, and unwillingness even when told to the whole church, but then the Lord produces that heart change and realization of, I can't deceive myself anymore. I can't pretend that I'm a Christian because everyone is recognizing I'm not. And that produces a really cool heart change. So one thing to, to talk about just briefly in 1 Corinthians 5, why does it happen so fast? Uh, Nacelli comments on this. In this context, one, the church already knows about the incestuous man's sin. So you're already basically in phase three. The whole church knows about it, so they should be all going and seeking his restoration. Two, he is unrepentant, clearly. And three, his sin is so scandalous that it undermines his claim to be a brother. Therefore, the church cannot publicly affirm that he's a genuine believer. It's a false witness for the church at large to continue to say, oh yeah, he's one of us. Yep, look at him if you want to see what a follower of Christ is like. It's actually a falsehood and a sham to continue to prop up him as an example. But the directions, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This world is still under the wicked influence of Satan. Ephesians 2.2 reads, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Revelation 20, 2-3 tells us Satan is not yet bound. Satan is not yet bound. We, the church of Jesus Christ, operate in enemy territory. We operate behind enemy lines as we labor to see the gospel embraced and lost sinners saved from their sins. We operate behind enemy lines. We operate as an outpost in the wilderness of this sinful world. The church is as an oasis in the desert. The fellowship of God's people is a reviving and radically countercultural environment where the soul is refreshed for their journey. One commentator writes, I understand of this passage, I understand 
It's simply of excommunication. For delivering over to Satan is an appropriate expression for denoting excommunication. For as Christ reigns in the church, so Satan reigns out of the church. He who is cast out of the church is in a manner delivered over to the power of Satan, for he becomes an alien and is cast out of Christ's kingdom. The reason for this, though, is remarkable. Look at the end of verse 5. This is a saving destruction for the destruction of the flesh that he might be saved, that his spirit might be saved. This is a temporal destruction of the flesh for the eternal salvation of the spirit. Here is a man complacently living in sin and the only hope, the only hope for this man's final salvation in the day of the Lord is if his sinful flesh is destroyed. Paul indicates that church discipline is a key means that God uses to bring about ultimate salvation. And excommunication often serves to either rattle an unbeliever from his self-deception or prompt a sin-entangled believer to humble themselves and get serious about their sanctification. It is a hard process to see this unfold. It's tremendously important as what we see in this passage. Before we turn on to the next couple verses and talk about the basis for this, are there any questions at this point or things to, to comment on or clarify from this part? Yeah. Um, so it was the nature of this particular sin that also led to his immediate expulsion. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, I, I agree entirely. I think that's part of what Nacelli commented on in saying that, that, that third point, that his sin is so scandalous that it undermines his claim to be a brother. And there are some, some situations like where, it's, where it's that, like just so clearly undermining the claim, but also where it's, it's actually a, an, an actual danger to those in the flock. So I think that's a great point, Russ. Anything else to comment or add on to this? Or questions for clarification? Yeah, because like, oh, they're not directly, it's not directly bothering us. That's a good question. Um, I think there's definitely the other, other passages that talk about church discipline where it's like not a direct like sinned against an individual. So I I think in combination with those passages, it's, it's realizing it's really broadly sin. Jesus is giving the individual instructions to, to people that have been sinned against. But I think it's also important to realize that like, and we'll, we'll kind of talk through this um, actually in the next passage a little bit, next part of the passage, um, that sin doesn't just stay isolated. So it's like maybe this person, oh, it's okay. He's just, he's not murdering anyone in the church. So he's not sinned against us. I mean, that's a silly example, right? But it's, it's a realization that sin doesn't stay isolated. And really, there's a sense in which he is sinning against everyone because his example alone is, is a, a, a horrible portrayal. So great question, though. Any other questions or, or things to clarify? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it kind of gets to that, that realization that is a big part of it, like the realization of I'm out of anything. No one's pretending I'm a believer anymore. And that's bringing to light just how fleshly and carnal and sinful that individual is. Then that's the, the, the flesh that has to be destroyed. But he's been harboring that flesh and, and just keeping that sin hidden before. So I think it's the, real, uh, the, the revealing of that um, 
sinfulness that then gets addressed and addressed evangelistically where he's now being reminded of the gospel every time he sees a church member basically so uh, does that clarify a little bit okay yeah Great question, and I'm, I wish I had the verse like immediately to mind in 2 Corinthians, where it actually talks about a man's restoration, but it's, yes, absolutely embracing him. Uh, yeah, chapter 2. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Forgive the sinner is the instructions. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, but to put it too severely to all of you. And that kind of addresses your question, David, also. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather to turn, forgive, and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone who you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Yeah, great. Thank you for highlighting that, and I should have planned to turn to that, because seeing the resolution is amazing. So, great question. Other questions? All right, let's continue on. Verses 6 through 8. The basis, purity is God's plan for his church. Purity is God's plan for his church. Verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old lump that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You really are Unleavened. Sorry, I skip up there. Uh, Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul illustrates his point with the feast of the Passover. Exodus 12, 30 through 31 recounts the whole story, but specifically verses 19 through 21. For seven days, No leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Very clear reference that Paul is making to this account. And just like there was to be no leaven In the Passover bread, so there's to be no impurity in the church. Sin festers. Does anyone know what leaven is? Does anyone, we we use the word a lot, does anyone know what it is? Yes. Yeah, yeast, something like yeast, yeast, something that's going to make the the bread rise. Does anyone know, um, I don't know, biochemical background makes me want to just describe how yeast works in dough, but I don't think anyone cares that much. But if you want to know how it works, it's a living organism. Yeast is digesting things. That's what's causing bread to rise. That's how a little bit of leaven can leaven the whole lump. Because leaven, yeast, can reproduce. Because it's a living organism, it grows and it multiplies. And a little bit goes a long way. 
What an accurate description for sin. Sin cannot be partitioned in your life. This passage is talking about the corporate dynamic, a church fellowship, a church family, but this has immediate applications for our own lives. I don't know why you would do this, but has anyone ever taken a cup of water and dropped a marble into it? All right, I guess probably not. But some of us treat sin that way in our lives. We treat it like it's a marble that I can just kind of throw the, throw the marble into the, the cup of water and at some time I can just kind of pull it out and fish it out and then no, no more marble in my life. Marble will be in my life for a day, come out the next day. But it's not like that. It's not like that at all. It's much more like taking a, a cube of sugar or a pinch of salt and throwing that into the water and then just assuming, oh, I'll just fish it out tomorrow. But it doesn't work that way because... In the same way that salt is water-soluble, you could say sin is flesh-soluble. Sin mixes within our whole person. No matter how hard we try to keep it cornered into a certain area of our lives, it will relentlessly press in and diffuse into other areas of our lives. This is true individually, and this is true corporately. Satan, of course, promises the opposite. Satan says, oh, what's a... What's a drop of sin and an ocean of godliness? What's a, what's a little bit of sin that you can just say no to later? Oh, to the contrary. But Christ died for your holiness. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. This is so cool. The reason for cleaning out the old leaven is that it's not fitting with our fundamental identity in Christ. Essentially, they must remove the evil that they might be as they are. Paul says that they really are unleavened. Your identity is purity. Your identity is holiness. Your identity is cleansed, washed, sanctified. So cleanse out the old leaven. Put to death that which is fleshly. So how is it that you are pure? How is it that you are unleavened? It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, Christ. Titus 2, 13 through 14 says, Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's why Christ redeemed us. He redeemed us to purify a people that were holy. So the solution to sin is not to just start some moral reformation plan. It's not to just kind of say, all right, I guess I'm not supposed to do this thing, so I'm just going to try and stop doing this. No, it is to recognize that I'm already holy based on Christ's righteousness on my behalf, which he purchased on the cross, and then take steps of obedience in keeping with my new life in him. This dynamic is one that I'm sure many of you are familiar with throughout the New Testament. Put off, put on. Put off, put on. The biblical sanctification plan, put off sin, put on righteousness. The biblical pattern for fighting sin and growing in holiness is to put off and to put on. Ephesians 4, 20-24 says, This is not the way you learned Christ. All this deadness that those in Ephesus were before they were saved. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3 continues in a separate letter, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 1 Corinthians 5, 8 doesn't use the words put off, put on, but it's the same concept. Look at verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Putting off the malice and evil and putting on sincerity and truth. Just speaking directly to all of you, some of you have identified malice and evil in your lives. In your own lives, you've seen malice and evil and perhaps there's unconfessed sexual sin that only you know about. There's an evil which taints your actions. And in our self-informed attempts at moral reformation, we're apt to try to add in sincerity and truth without removing malice and evil, or to do the opposite, to try and remove the malice and the evil. I just, just got to get the sin out of my life, but not doing the other thing that Scripture says, which is putting on godliness, you, putting in the, the sincerity and the truth. It's a, our hearts are are going to be filled with something. So to try and remove sin without putting in righteousness is to create a vacuum in your heart. And it'll just tend right back to that sin if not presented with that which needs to be put on. So putting off and putting on are both, they're both essential elements for seeing lasting change and growth in your life as a believer. Questions, points of clarification before we hit this last paragraph. identity. The reason for cleaning out the old leaven is that it is not fitting with our fundamental identity in Christ. No problem. Any other questions or points of clarification or things that have been perhaps muddied? I think this passage, this section is more straightforward than verse 5, so it's kind of easy to grasp that picture of something that needs to be removed. So continuing on verse 9 through 13, a key clarification. Don't mix up these instructions. Don't flip-flop it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 13 reads, I wrote to you in my letter, he's talking about a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. And here's a way that apparently the Corinthians misunderstood that. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Verses 9 through 10, evangelistically engaging the lost, not defensively withdrawing from the lost. Sinners sin. The lost are lost. Wicked hearts commit wicked actions. Tonight, we're going to be hearing more about unreached people groups. When missionaries press into a context in which the gospel has not yet reached, they push into contexts where wickedness and sexual perversion have perpetuated unchecked by the grace of God for generations. Polygamy, cultic sexual practices, prostitution, and plenty of other desperately empty sexual sins 
run rampant in these places. And the Great Commission is a call to move toward those who are enslaved to sexual sin. I'm going to say that again. This is so important. The Great Commission is a call to move toward those who are enslaved to sexual sin. The Great Commission isn't a call of like, oh, I'm going to press in and share the gospel with that sinner and that sinner and that sinner, but oh, they look like they might have sexual sin. I'm going to steer clear of that person by no means. It's not to run away and simply form some sort of holy huddle. Our Lord's commission is a commission to bring the message of true freedom to those who truly need it. The message that there is forgiveness from sins is to be found, to be found only in Christ. The message that our sins were paid for by Jesus if we would just place our faith in him. The message that God's wrath has been poured out on his son that it might not be poured out on us and that salvation and newness of life are to be found in Jesus Christ. That message is the message we bring. Christ's call is for his disciples to go into the world, not withdraw from it. Practically considering this in your own life, how are you pressing into the lives of the lost around you? How are you carefully associating with those of this world? What needs to be adjusted in your approach to relationships with non-believers? But then the flip-flop of this and the danger that they're at, at danger of switching is verse 11 through 13. And that's, they need to be correctively responding to sin within the church, not passively continuing to embrace unrepentant sinners. Understanding the category of professor is helpful here. You think of professors and usually you're thinking of your professors at school, but there's an older term saying a professor is someone that's professing faith in Christ. But there are those that profess faith in Christ who are not repentant, genuine, born-again believers. We need to have this category in our minds and recognize this, that someone might be professing faith but not walking at all aligned with what God has said. So association, and here's why this matters, association implies some level of agreement. Association implies some level of agreement. Helpful quote from Thomas Schreiner that I won't read at this time. Judgment within the church is an act of obedience to Christ. We're going to talk about that a lot more when we look at chapter 6, talking about what is the role of a judgment? How's that supposed to work? Because another cultural montage, is, oh, don't judge me. Okay, what, is, what does Scripture have to say about judgment? How's that supposed to look? So what happens when these things get switched? Tragically, many people pull back from the world that needs to be evangelistically engaged. You pull back from the world that needs to hear the gospel. Meanwhile, simultaneously failing to pull back from a nominal Christian who fails to acknowledge and repent of their sinfulness. We flip-flop this, don't we? I think we've probably all been guilty of pulling back from someone that looks like, oh, man, those, those sin issues look hard to deal with. I'm going to pull back from that relationship. And we can also relate to, just on a minor scale, I... I really don't want to tell this brother about this sin. It, it, it could risk my friendship with him. It could, it could be really challenging to say, hey, brother, I, I, I noticed this thing in your life. Have you noticed it? Even on a minor scale. Like, hey, did you notice what you said to that person? How much more do we have this fear of man when it comes to major issues? Both are essential for appropriately applying this passage, both to, to press into those that are lost and to not embrace and warmly welcome someone that is unrepentant in their professing to know Christ but living totally contradictory. 
So just wrapping up some applicational considerations. I can't peer into the hearts of anyone here. There's one person here that can, the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit of God who makes individualized applications of Scripture to each believer who hears the word. Nevertheless, with this passage, I want to just suggest some potential specific applications. One, fight sin. How are you dealing with sin in your life? Have you made an unspoken peace treaty with indwelling sin, or are you actively waging war? Trust me, a peace treaty with sin does not end well. Satan is a liar. He will not keep his end of the bargain. And also, who is helping you in that fight? 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure, pure heart. Who are you doing that along with? And also recognize that with sin, any sin is too much sin. Even a trace. It takes a very little to leaven the whole lump. So be serious about any sin in your life, no matter how you might think it's minor. Put off, put on. That's the biblical dynamic. Second, church membership. If you've been attending CBC for a while and have not yet joined as a member, take some time to seriously consider why that is the case. Just ask yourself why. What is preventing commitment to a local body of Christ? Is pride preventing willing intentional and responsible submission to other believers? Is that at play? Or are there doctrinal questions that you've kind of put on the back burner and said, oh, I just need to work through what I believe on this issue, but it's kind of, I'm just going to push that off indefinitely. Ask yourself why. Think through those things. Talk to another member. Talk to a member about what those questions are, and I know all of us would love to answer those. So though intensely, intensely personal, God designed sanctification to be a group project. And we all know what group projects are like. It's challenging because we have to work alongside others. But that's, in a big way, how our sanctification is supposed to look. Of course, it's individual, but it's not merely an individual endeavor. There's so many commands in Scripture about how we're supposed to be spurring one another on, caring about the other person's sanctification. We're supposed to be fleeing sin with fellow believers. We saw that in 2 Timothy 2.22. Third application suggestion, confront sin. Are you willing to lovingly confront someone who's claiming to know Jesus but living in sin? Are you willing to risk a friendship for the sake of someone's soul? Think about that question. Are you willing to risk a friendship for the sake of someone's soul? That's what it takes to go to someone and say, you're living in sin, brother. Are you willing to risk that friendship, to love that person enough, and third, or fourthly, love the lost. Do you have non-believers that you are regularly praying for and seeking to share the gospel with? Or are you pulling back from gospel opportunities for selfish reasons? Are you disassociating from non-believers because of the messiness of their sin-impacted lives? This passage contains some hard instructions, and it is extremely countercultural. In many places, these commands or even counter-church cultural. This is not common even in American evangelicalism. So it's not a comfy pathway to pursue these things. It's, it's swimming upstream, as it were, but it's the biblical mandate. It's a hard mandate. It's one we're all called to follow. Allow me to close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the fact that it, it helps us see so much, and especially this passage just 
in my own life, pushing me to dig into things that I've not yet dug into and think through things that are hard to, hard to apply and unpleasant sometimes. Lord, we thank you that you care about our sanctification, you care about our growth and holiness enough to inspire instructions like these that are so transcultural in their application, whether it be Corinth 2,000 years ago or Kalamazoo, Michigan at Calvary Bible Church today. We need these instructions. Help us, Lord, to humbly apply these things and to be yielded to your Spirit's work in our lives. We just plead with you to be producing in each of us individually growth in godliness, growth in holiness. We long to be as we are. We long to be living as that newly leavened lump, leavened with sincerity and truth, to have a life that's marked by godliness and holiness. We so long for that, Lord, and we know the struggle against the old leaven is real. The battle is constant. It's wearisome. Lord, we thank you that your grace sustains us and that that weariness drives us to you, even as Pastor Brett reminded us this morning from Isaiah. Again, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We lift up the rest of this day to you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.